blue Cadillac, long, tall, and lean, white cowboy hat. Pulled up a stool at the bar, said I'm looking for Audrey. Took off his coat, lit up a smoke, stared into space, completely heartbroken. I said, why don't you have? He said, I'm looking for Audrey. Bone chilling greetings to every single one of you. Thank you so much for stopping by, checking out Paranormal Products Podcast. Those tunes that just went through the old listening vessels is, of course, courtesy of the awesome Bobby Mackey. And as always, I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. Mount Hope Cemetery, a place that even if you've never been in the state of Maine, you may be familiar with and recognize, as it was in one of my favorite movies, Pet Cemetery. During the saddest scene ever, of course, when they are burying sweet baby Gage Creed. Stephen King, he was just a young college student when he first started visiting this cemetery. He would come here to Mount Hope for motivation and inspiration, for ideas that would eventually be put into his books and movies. Some of the characters' names come from the names on the headstones here, such as Carrie and Georgie. Mount Hope Cemetery in Bangor, Maine, is the second oldest garden cemetery in the United States, being founded in 1834. With 300 acres, many call this their eternal home, well over 30,000. Now, as we see in all burial grounds, there's a variety of folks buried here, including Civil War generals, at least 10 congressmen, two United States ambassadors, Four governors of Maine, comedians such as Richard Golden, actors like Ralph Sipperly. One of the most notorious people who calls this place home probably has to be Al Brady, a gangster and public enemy number one. That's right, numero uno, who was killed in downtown Bangor during a shootout with the FBI back in 1937. Brady, he was a bank robber and a murderer. Life was hard. At the tender age of two, his father, he dies. At 16, his mother dies. And at 18, his stepdad also passes away. After the final death, he takes a wrong turn down a road of corruption, destruction, and murder. While in the middle of a robbery, the gang murders the store clerk and a police officer named Richard Rivers. It's also believed they were behind the murder of another cop as well. One day, as they're fleeing from Goodland State Bank, in which they just robbed, mind you, they murder one of their pursuers, an Indiana State Trooper, Paul Miniman. The Brady Gang, Al Brady. Emily Schaefer, well, they are killed in the ambush between special agents. James Dalhover is charged with the murder of Trooper Miniman. And thankfully, justice is served when James is executed via the electric chair at the Indiana State Prison in November of 1938. I found an old article basically giving a front row view to the execution. 
Dalhover was doomed for Trooper Miniman's murder. Appeals ran their course, and now, one year, one month, and five days after Banger gun-loving little Jimmy's time, was running out. At 11.50, U.S. Marshal Husinski said, Okay, let's go. We move swiftly in the heart of the dark, sleeping prison to the deputy warden's building. Very undramatic place, said Johnny Cutter of the United Press, dryly. It was. We stood midway along a plain corridor between flanking rows of seclusion cells, now all empty but one. There were no seats, no frills. At the bare corridor's end waited the old black chair. I knew there'd be no slow, dramatic march to Old Smoky, with Dalhover murmuring brave farewells prison pals had warned. Look sharp, it'll be fast. Professional pride quieted my stomach butterflies. I was a local yokel, competing with press service newsmen. I had to be tautly sensitive, sharp eyes, keenly alert to every detail. I watched the open steel door which blocked our view at, at 12.02 a.m., a silent unseen signal, triggered a drama which unfolded with bewildering speed. Two husky guards stepped briskly to the cell door, reached in, and emerged with Dalhover between them, firmly grasped at the elbows. Jimmy looked like a grotesque rag doll. A black mask covered his face from the forehead down, he wore an old blue shirt and rumpled brown slacks. Now he was turned toward the chair, propelled through a few flat, choppy steps, spun swiftly, and almost slammed right into old Smokey. In seconds, quick, efficient guards affixed the head and leg electrodes and tightened the straps. The chaplain came slowly from Dalhover's cell, leaned against the wall, and bowed his head in prayer. Abruptly, the chair crew stepped clear. I heard a faint thud as a switch rammed home. Dalhover's body did not leap or convulse or surge against his bonds. The straps were too tight, only his fingertips clenched and quivered as 2,300 volts poured in. A tiny wisp of smoke arose from Jimmy's head but we were too far away to suffer the sickening scent of burning flesh. There was a second jolt, a brief wait, then a raspy rip as a guard tore open Jimmy's shirt. Dr. P.H. Weeks, prison's physician, moved in with a stethoscope. In the taut silence, his murmured words were audible. It's still beating. The heart is stubborn. Dr. Weeks presently tried again and nodded. The straps came off and onto an undertaker stretcher went the limp rag doll. I noted the time, 12.06. It had taken less than five minutes. We raced for telephones. I was afraid that after the rush of reporting the story was over, something would hit me in the stomach. Nothing did, nor was sleep that night disturbed by nightmares or restless tossing. It had all been too drab, colorless, swift, and efficient. I scarcely realized I had seen a man die. A man? Yes. If the point was stretched, 
but a man who many times in many ways had forfeited his right to live in society. The last member of the last spectacular bandit gang of the crime-ridden 30s. Now, Jimmy himself is not buried with his partner in crime, but he is in Fairmont Cemetery. There's quite a few notable burials here, like Vice President Hannibal Hamlin. Picture it, Independence Day, 1891. It's a beautiful day out, and Hannibal is at the Terratine Club. He was with friends, just relaxing, playing cards. Life is great. He was well-liked. He was a successful man. Not only was he vice president of the United States, but he also was a senator, a governor, a congressman, and minister to Spain. Like, talk about man of many traits, right? His two sons served in civil war, and he was at Ford's Theater the night that Lincoln was assassinated. Another resident at the Mount Hope Cemetery is the well-known painter Waldo Pierce who not only painted, but fought in the First World War, serving with the Army Intelligence. He became very good friends with Hemingway, and they often traveled together, even going to Spain. Merle Fogg lies here eternally. He only lived to see 29, but in his less than three decades alive, this young man accomplished a ton. Like Waldo, he served in the First World War, he got a degree in engineering while attending the University of Maine, and in his early 20s, he learns how to fly. Three years before his untimely death, Merle opens his very own airfield, Merle Fogg's Flying Service. He was the first aviator to fly from Maine to Florida, and the first to land on Andres Island and NASA. He died when attempting to teach his student to fly a Waco biplane. Meanwhile, another resident has an actual town named after him. Not kidding. Samuel Vesey was an extremely successful man who owned a bank, about 80 sawmills, and thousands and thousands of acres of timberland and real estate. He felt that Banger was kind of taking advantage of him, taking his properties more than usual, so he petitions the state legislator for his very own town, and he got it. VZ. He dies in 1868. People have experienced odd things at the cemetery, such as feeling sudden unexplained cold spots, hearing footsteps when no one else is around. Gangster Al Brady's full-bodied apparition has been seen lurking about. Some visitors have heard children talking when no children, at least living children, are around it is believed to be Maine's most haunted cemetery. Mount Hope is on private property, but I believe during May through September, it is open to the public, which is really awesome. I love it when the owner decides to share the beauty and history with the world. So obviously, as with all burial grounds, when you go, please be respectful. Now we head to Boone Island, where mariners meet thy doom. Six miles off the main coast from the town of York, a small desolate island, a barren 300 by 700 foot shoal, which shrinks to 150 feet during high tide or during storms, the entire island has been known to be completely enveloped into the unforgiving sea. Boone Island is home to the largest lighthouse in New England, 
visible for 19 nautical miles, standing tall and mighty and proud at 133 feet. And I couldn't find an exact number of lighthouses that are scattered throughout New England, but there's over 200, so this is no easy feat. The foghorn sounds one blast every 10 seconds. And in 1980, solar power is installed by the United States Coast Guard, and that flashes every five seconds. Boy, oh boy, and I thought Execution Rocks Lighthouse in New York flashing every 10 seconds was a lot. <laughs> it was converted into a lighthouse in 1811. There's a nearby shallow underwater rock ledge that's well over four miles out, and this makes this location extremely dangerous. Before the lighthouse was installed, this was considered one of the most dangerous islands off the New England coast. And it's no wonder that New Hampshire author Celia Thaxter referred to the island as, quote, the forlornest place that can be imagined. In her 1873 book titled Among the Isles of Shoals, she pens regarding the lighthouse, quote, a slender column against the sky. Sometimes it looms colossal in the mirage of summer. In winter it lies blurred and ghostly at the edge of the chilly sea and the pallid sky, unquote. Cilia would not be the only one to write about Boone Island. During my research for this episode, I found many different accounts, several from people who actually lived on the island, keeping detailed records about incidents and encounters and close calls. And I'm going to read some of those later on as they give us a front row seat to life on this desolate, extremely isolated island, where if something goes wrong, you really have no place to go. The lighthouse you see today is not the original as the granite tower has washed away several times due to Maine's harsh ocean. In 1682, long before the lighthouse existed, a coastal trading vessel named the Increase wrecks on Boone Island. Four men survive the shipwreck and are stranded on the island miles from shore, which they could actually see almost as if it's taunting them so close but oh so far. They are here for an entire month. And it's not easy. <laughs> Believe me, it was no picnic. But these men, they survive these excruciating, terrifying times by eating fish and seagull eggs. One day, to the men's relief, they see smoke rising from the Mount Agimenticus. So they build their own fire, sending a smoke signal, which gets the attention of the Indians on Mount Agimenticus. And the four men, they are finally rescued. Word was that their rescue was a boon from God. That's why its name is Boone Island. However, this is inaccurate as in 1630, 52 years earlier, Captain John Winthrop was in the area and actually mentions Boone Island in a detailed journal he kept during his travels, saying, quote, We saw also ahead of us, some four leagues from shore, a small rock called Boone Isle not above a flight shot over, which hath a dangerous shoal to the east and by south of it, some two leagues in length, Unquote. Then in 1710, another shipwreck takes place, but unlike the vessel, the increase, this one will have a different ending and will forever be a part of Boone Island's 
haunting history. The year was 1710. A small English vessel known as the Nottingham Galley was navigating these treacherous waters one freezing December day when they run aground onto the island. Two men died due to injuries they suffered from the wreck, while two others died when they attempted to travel the six miles back to the mainland by using a makeshift raft. While the past shipwreck survivors managed to survive by living off seabird eggs and fish, these men, well, they resorted to cannibalism. New Year's Day in 1711, the town's coroner, Louis Bain, found himself on a beach in Maine. This was no family beach day. No, this was 100% work. The man, Lewis, knows death well. He lives it. He breathes it. It's his life. He looks down at the sad excuse of a body and frowns and shakes his head. Thinks to himself, Oh, poor soul. What happened to this man? The cold Maine winter sends a chill down his spine. And if the man knew the entire story, it wouldn't be the weather elements that gave the coroner the chills. The body of a man, well, it was an eyesore. It was very obvious that he was malnourished, not well before his death. He had these open sores all over his entire body. Like a fish in a net, seaweed entangled his body. The coroner strongly believed that this man must have found himself in trouble and desperately tried traveling from Boone Island. With help, Lewis makes his way to the desolate island. As the men approach, they see a tent flapping ever so wildly in the vicious wind. Among closer review, they witness three men waving their skeleton-like arms erratically. Help! Help us! One of those men was Captain John Bean, whose appearance frightened the newcomers and rescuers. He was covered in blood and sores. Now, I found online an article from the New England Historical Society where they detail some of this horrifying event. The men had used part of the sail from the ship to make a tent. From the wreck, some things like beef bones and cheese floated on the surface, so they managed to get that. Apparently, the cook dies on the second night, but his body went untouched as the survivors were eating mussels and ate a seagull that one man had killed, but they couldn't do a fire, so they ate the seagull raw. Longing to be out of this nightmare, one of the crewmen and a sailor set off on the makeshift raft. The crewman was never seen again, lost in the ocean forever, and the sailor is the frozen body that was discovered on the beach. Now, due to the cold, the ship's carpenter, supposedly a very plump man, he dies. He is eaten by his fellow men. The men said it was none other than Captain Dean's idea. However, until the day he died, he claimed that he objected to cannibalism of the carpenter, or anyone else for that matter. But the men overruled his pleas of objection, and there she blows. It is said that Dean, a trained butcher in England, cut off the man's head, hands, and feet to make him look less human. Supposedly, he slices pieces and wraps them in seaweed and hands them out to the people. 
Now, obviously, it's not like he was murdered to be eaten. He died due to the freezing weather, and the starving men made a choice. I mean, I can't imagine being in that situation. It's like, well, either you're eating John here, or, you know, you're starving to death and dying. The coroner and his fellow rescuer could not take the men with them that day, but made a fire for them and promised to return. Well, it it took a couple days until the storm passed and the waters were safe and calm, where they eventually were rescued. Many of the men had to have amputations due to frostbite, though, so it's pretty crazy stuff. After the Nottingham Galley incident, it is said that local fishermen would start to leave barrels of food and supplies on Boone Island, so if by chance anyone was ever stuck here again, history would not repeat itself. In more recent years, cannons have been discovered nearby, long believed to be from the doomed Nottingham Galley. Now, the first tower made out of wood was finished in 1799, not lasting terribly long, as it was destroyed during a bad storm in 1804. Lighthouse keepers were scarce. I mean, no one was really willing to stay too long. Being so secluded in the harsh elements, it was no fiesta here, my friends. I believe only two men managed to stay a good amount of time. One of those men was William W. Williams, who was here an impressive 27 years. The other is a former mariner, Ella Fallett Grover, a local with an amazing 22 years. Thank goodness for these two phenomenal men, as there were some that were just last days or weeks. The first keeper sees the vulnerability of the extremely low island and quits, leaving only after a few short weeks. David Oliver takes over, but he too does not last long. The successor, Thomas Hanna, comes in and resigns a few short years later in 1816. Now, in the summer of 1805, a stone day beacon is erected. Three workers leave the island via a boat after a hard day's work when disaster strikes. The boat capsizes and all three men sadly drown. More deaths connected forever to Boone Island. I believe it was after Keeper Hannah that the Mariner Grover came and stayed for 22 years. Grover, like many, had kept a detailed log. Here's one interesting entry that he had written October 31st, 1829. I've been here 13 years. Four months, 28 days, and never seen such a time before. The sea washed the small rocks from underneath the lighthouse and dwelling house. The island was all underwater for four hours. Over nine years later, another huge storm hits. And in his January 26, 1839 entry, Grover writes something. His letter even being published in the local papers. Quote, We experienced a heavy gale from the southeast at 10 p.m. The sea was up around the buildings. Sunday morning, between the hours of 9 to 11, the sea broke upon the buildings. The family then retreated to the lighthouse as a place of safety. The sea broke into the porch and unsung the doors and forced the door of the dwelling house and done considerable damage. Washing shells and seaweeds into the rooms. It washed away the platform which was built for the purpose of getting to one building from another. 
The sea struck the house monument and tore off the shingles halfway to the eaves, washing loose rocks away in front of the building so it had a fair chance to sweep over. During the day, a light breeze sprung up from southwest and west at 3 p.m. The tide being down, some of the fam ventured out and beheld an astonishing spectacle. Fragments of wood were scattered over the island, and large rocks, which had been quiet for over 20 years, were torn from their places. The sea continued rough for three days, but the wind coming from the northwest had gradually subsided. In 1846, Nathaniel Baker becomes the lighthouse keeper. It happens to be the same year that the schooner, Caroline, wrecks. Keeper Baker managed to save the entire crew. Even though many considered him a hero for doing this, he is relieved from his lighthouse duties a short time later in 1849. John Thompson, a man who was fired earlier on, takes over once again. Sometime in the 1850s, the lighthouse keeper's new bride, Kathleen Bright, moves on to the island, joining her groom. At this point, she had been calling the rocky island home for, I would say, just a few months when a horrible storm comes barreling through. The keeper himself, well, he is extremely sick and basically he's bedridden. His young bride is left with little experience, mind you, being in charge of of Boone Island Lighthouse. Well, days later, her husband, he dies, and she has to tend to the island all on her own. Well, story goes that days later, the locals, well, they grow kind of concerned when they notice the lighthouse is not showing its reliable, bright light. They wearily approach the island, find the lighthouse keeper deceased, and his wife, Kathleen, wandering about murmuring to herself. She's malnourished. She's clearly not in a right state of mind. Apparently on the fifth day, after losing her husband, she collapses due to exhaustion, dehydration, and starvation, an extremely dangerous combo. She never recovers from the ordeal, and she dies days later. In 1876, assistant keeper Edwin Hobbs' 14-year-old daughter writes an inside look of life on this barren island from a child's point of view, and it was so good that it was published in a children's magazine. Annie Bell Hobbs writes this, quote, Out at sea on a rock eight miles from the nearest point of land and about nine miles east of town of Kittery is Boone Island, upon which I have been a prisoner with the privilege of the yard the past two years. I will give you a description of the place and its inhabitants. The island is made up of nothing but rocks without a foot of ground for trees, shrubs, or grass. Now and then cells dot the wide expanse, reminding me that there is a world besides the one that I dwell in, all surrounded by water. The inhabitants of this island consist of eight persons, just the number that entered the ark at the time of the flood. There are three men, the three keepers of the light, whose duties are to watch the light all night to warn the sailors of danger. There are two families of us, and in my father's family there are five members. Our colony is so small and the children so few that the inhabitants have concluded not to build a schoolhouse. Consequently, I have my father and mother for teachers. 
In the summer, we have quite a number of visitors who board at the beaches during the season. They come to see the lighthouse and all it contains, and we are very glad to show them all. Though it is quite tiresome to go up into the light a number of times during the day, since it is 133 feet from the rock on which it stands to the light. Up there among the clouds, my father and the other keepers have to watch night after night through the storms as well as pleasant weather, through summer and winter, year round, from sunset to sunrise, so that the poor sailors may be warned off from danger. Unquote. From 1888 to 1911, William W. Williams serves as principal lighthouse keeper. He writes, The sea would clean the ledge right off, sometimes. I was always thinking over just what I would do in order to save my own life, should the whole station be swept away. No kidding. Times were rough. Not easy? In the slightest. Basically no good outcome if disaster strikes. Not if, but when. I found one interesting story involving William Williams. It was Thanksgiving. His assistant keepers and him were unsuccessful in getting a turkey for a dinner. Well, as if a gift sent from heaven, a boon sent from heaven, earlier that day a dozen black ducks had smashed into the tower. This provided the men more than a feast for Thanksgiving. (laughs) Talk about being thankful. Journalist and writer Samuel Adams Drake mentions the island in his writings in 1891. Quote, Eight or nine mile out, in plain sight, Boone Island lifts its solitary shaft to loft like an eternal exclamation mark to the temerity of its builders. There is no comfortable dwelling on that lonely rock over which storms sweep unchecked. The tower is itself both house and home to the watchmen of the sea, and in great gales, a prison in which there is no escape until the return of fine weather. Now, in early 1944, a British cargo ship known as Empire Knight, loaded with war supplies and 221 flasks of mercury, is headed towards New York when it gets caught in a horrible storm and wrecks on Boone Island who we now know is no stranger to shipwrecks, destruction, and death. Twenty-four people die that fateful day. The Empire Knight was just a baby, being built two years earlier. In the following year, 1945, keeper John Morris gives another look into Boone Island. What really scared us was the sound that the rocks made as they hit each other. Not a stone on the island was left unturned. The generator failed when a giant sea broke right into the engine room, and we had to operate for the rest of the storm with kerosene lamps. The waves actually climbed halfway up the side of the lighthouse tower itself. I shall never forget that gale of 1945. The lighthouse, well, it would eventually become automated, much to all the lighthouse keepers' delight and relief, in 1978. Boone Island is believed to be an extremely active location when it comes to hauntings. In fact, it's considered one of the most haunted lighthouses in Maine, and this is no easy feat as there are at least 65 of them scattered along Maine's coasts, islands, and inlets. One time, 
before the automated days, two of the lighthouse keepers had left the island for a day of fishing. They lost track of time when it was obvious nightfall was not too far away. Well, in a race to catch up to the lighthouse before nightfall takes place, frantically the men, they start to make their way back. As no one was there to operate the light, and as we all know, this could be the difference between life and death. Dinner or a watery grave. Beer or seawater. You get the drift. As the men make their way back to the lonely island, they cannot help but notice one thing that sent shivers down their spines. The light, well, it was flashing. They arrive, and without wasting a morsel of a second, the men, they search every inch of that island. Is there an intruder on Boone Island? Did a drifter come over? Is somebody hiding? Who's controlling the light? They search and they find nothing whatsoever. They cannot explain why the light was operating on its own. Just didn't make any sense. Well, man's best friend also experiences strange things here. Coast Guardsman Dave Wells witnesses his Labrador Retriever becoming extremely spooked and acts quite erratically as it chases an unseen presence from one side of the island to the other. Locals, visitors, and fishermen at times have heard a mournful wail, especially on stormy nights. Many believe this to be none other than Kathleen, the poor unfortunate soul, new bride turned widow who was stuck here with her dead husband for days before help came. Is this really Kathleen reliving the nightmare and crying for help? Someone help us! Someone please! Many have seen an apparition of a woman, all in white. All who see her cannot help but notice just how sad this woman looks. It's heartbreaking. Some think it's the captain of Nottingham Galley's mistress, and others think it's the Coast Guard keeper Bob Roberts' widow. Now, I'm unsure if Bob Roberts' widow is Kathleen, as when I was looking up Kathleen's story, I never saw what her husband's name actually was. So I don't know if it's another lady or if it's the same one. Whoever this woman is, though, it's apparent that she is forever mourning and roams the island to this very day. Before his passing, Roberts himself had shared that he would witness with his own eyes doors opening and closing on their own accord. And when he was in the area where the foghorn was, he always felt like he was being watched. Been there, done that. Shipwrecks, deaths, cannibalism, and resident spirits. This rocky island surely has been through it all. And then some. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others. They are equally awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry. Just head on over to any of those awesome podcast platforms, such as CastBox, Owltell, Podcast Republic, Player FM, Apple Podcasts. Wherever you may roam to listen to your other spooky podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to Rapid City, South Dakota, Warrington, Oregon, Moss, Norway, Perryville, 
Kentucky, and Safford, Arizona. Rock stars, every single one of you, you are greatly appreciated. Be sure to stop by Monday to check out the newest episode. Thank you, and we will see you next week.